listening to the Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank, working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Marie Lamanche. I work for the uh, Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Uh, welcome to the Coronavirus Diaries, uh, makes a special series on human rights and the geopolitical impact of the global pandemic. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Jacob Kalinsky, who is a fellow at the Atlantic Council. Uh, and he focuses on a lot on disinformation and uh, in this capacity, you kind of help raise awareness about uh, disinformation, uh, especially these days, which I think it's particularly important. So, um, Jacob, welcome. Hello, pleased to be here. Um, can you please tell us a little bit, perhaps introduce yourself, introduce your work and, and what you do at the, at the Atlantic Council? So, uh, in the Atlantic Council, I'm part of the Digital Forensic Research Lab. Our mission is to explain and expose disinformation uh, wherever it may appear and uh, within the DFR lab I'm responsible for external contributions so mm -hmm. apart from our own research and apart from what our own researchers are covering I'm trying to have articles from other experts from all over the world who are covering topics that we can't cover for example because of uh, not enough language uh, uh, capacities or, or regional regional capacities so I'm trying to have uh, articles from from regions that we can't cover uh, and I'm also writing uh, pieces that are more like um, analytical or, or commentary like rather than the uh, case studies and research that my colleagues are covering I see yeah um First, like in, in general terms, why do you think we should pay attention to disinformation and propaganda narratives about the coronavirus used by diff different actors? Why is it important to perhaps stop the pandemic or um, make things a little bit better? I, I think these, uh, it's exactly these crisis events that show us how, how important it is to pay enough attention to organize the disinformation campaigns just the the most recent article we have russian telegram rumor claiming smoking protects from coronavirus spreads to ukraine we see that uh the number one information criminal which currently is uh, in the kremlin and it, it is the russian information ecosystem is deliberately spreading lies about the virus about the origin of the virus blaming that it was uh, the United States who actually invented this uh, virus and are spreading it. Uh, but I have even seen uh, articles blaming Latvians for producing this virus. So you can see that they are blaming everyone else. And here in this particular case, uh, they are lying about what will, uh, what will help you to cure the virus. Uh, and it's, it's really a big difference if you are protecting yourself mm -hmm. against the virus based on facts or based on fabrications and disinformation and lies. So, so we can see that disinformation can, can really threaten people's lives. And uh, it is exactly events like this that remind us of that. 
Um, they, there is a, a recent European Union report that mentioned that um, pro-Kremlin media have basically mounted a significant disinformation campaign aimed specifically at Europe. Um, who are the actors in this field? Are there fringe media? Are there, where are they present on social media and other forms of media? So, so, so the ecosystem spreading pro-Kremlin disinformation is really enormous and it's not only the fringe media, although they are also a crucial part of this, but I think, I think uh, we can see a development that would be more like top-down approach and we can also see bottom-up approach. Uh, the top-down approach is really, uh, you, could, you could imagine the beginning as being the regular Friday meetings in the Kremlin where the Kremlin officials are giving instructions to the pseudo media what they should lie about. So this week you, you, will, you will say that Ukrainians are fascists, that MH17 was shot down by everybody else except Russia, that we have no uh, civilian casualties in Syria, and that it is Britain to blame for Skripal poisoning, etc., etc. And you would have the big TV shows that are the most important ones are on Sunday evening, uh, on, on Rasia Ajin and on Pierre Canal and, and then on other TV channels. And the narratives that you see on Sunday evening, you would see them throughout the week in, in the smaller TV shows, in the print media. And then from this Russian system, it will be spreading via the language, uh, via the various mutations of Sputnik and Russia today into other languages. And you might think that, I don't know, the Polish version of Sputnik is not an enormously popular website. It is not, but there is precisely the ecosystem of these fringe websites and of the blog sites that are parroting the narratives that are spread via the Polish version of Sputnik. And then through that, it penetrates to the social media who are an important amplifier. And uh, whereas Facebook and Twitter might be the most important in, in the English language sphere, it might be Vkontakte that is more important in some other languages. It might be uh, Weibo in, in China. So, so, so that would be the top-down approach. But then we can definitely see something, some activity that would be more bottom-up. And you can see that since there is demand at the top for disinformation activities, you can see that the lower levels are kind of offering their disinformation narratives. And there is a huge competition in, in the lower levels which disinformation may succeed. Mm -hmm. And those pieces of disinformation that are the most successful, then they get amplified by the bigger Russian media. And sometimes they can even penetrate to the top. So, so we have, for example, seen this uh, famous Lisa case. I think people who follow disinformation in Europe uh, will be quite familiar with that. That was in 2016 in Germany. Uh, a little girl, uh, I believe she was 13 years old, uh, from a Russian-speaking family in Germany. Uh, she didn't come home uh, one night. She invented a story that she was raped by migrants. When the police uh, asked her for questioning, she admitted that she made it up. It was a lie, and in fact, she was with her boyfriend. But the Russian-language block sites immediately picked the story up, uh, amplified it into narrative. The German government is... Uh, hiding the problems with the refugees and refugees are raping underage girls here, here in Germany and the government is covering it up. And we could precisely see that it started on the block sites and in the social media, 
and only later it got amplified by uh, the important Russian uh, state TV channels like Pierre Canal. And only later it was Sergei Lavrov himself, the Minister of mm. Foreign Affairs, who accused Angela Merkel of uh, making light of the problem with the refugees. Uh, so, so you could see that there are various approaches, and but the ecosystem of, of mm. the uh, that that is spreading this program and disinformation, it would be the state media, it would be the French websites, it would be mm -hmm. some Facebook groups. It's actually quite enormous. Okay, and when when did you see specifically about the coronavirus? How, how when did you see the conspiracy theories? Um, emerge and how have they kind of evolved over time because we are also looking at the case of china and china's narrative is really changing so um could you tell us a little bit more about that so uh my my ex-colleagues in brussels they have actually traced the first piece of disinformation uh i believe it was 20th or 22nd of january um and if i remember correctly it was one of the uh, versions of Sputnik that was claiming that uh, the COVID-19 virus is actually a US biological weapon. It's quite funny that uh, this is precisely the narrative that we have seen being spread by the Russian media in the past seven decades. Wherever there was a new virus, they immediately accused the US, this is, this is a US biological or chemical weapon and it tries to eradicate some segments of, of, this, of the population. So, so this is something that we actually know from, from the Soviet slash Russian propaganda quite, quite uh, well. And um, so by the end of January, it was only in the Russian state media. And we have, uh, we have this uh, Czech company called Semantic Visions. They are tracing, oh, my, my cat is doing exactly the same. <laughs> so don't get surprised if she comes. Uh, uh, we have this company called Semantic Visions, and they are analyzing open source uh, intelligence. They uh, they are able to see 90% of news sources uh, uh, all over the internet, and uh, they have traced that exactly these Russian narratives uh, that were spread by the end of January were later picked up by official Chinese propaganda. So Chinese pro disinformation channels used basically the same information that the Russian uh, disinformation channels were mm. spreading uh, earlier. And, and later the story got picked up, uh, for example, by, by Czech disinformation outlets. But we would see it um, just, just this morning, the uh, EU versus Disinfo project published the fresh uh, disinformation review. And there, I believe they highlighted like eight uh, various language mutations of the Sputnik spreading these kinds of conspiracies. Uh, so you can see that uh, they are really trying to spread it through as many languages as possible. Yeah, I, I read yesterday as well that Iran is also slowly jumping on that bandwagon and using also that conspiracy theory of bioweapons or something that, you know, the, the, the Americans have, have done to, to, uh, to foreign countries. Um, I have to admit, I haven't noticed that, but I can't say I'm surprised. It's, uh, we, we do see that the disinformation actors are learning from each other, picking up each other's tactics and sometimes even spreading exactly the same messages so so it is something that we see in the information space happening quite a lot and especially in the last uh, two years we would see that uh, i think i think it's us to blame that there are now more actors using precisely this kind of weapons because we in the west uh, we have basically proven that 
the aggressors can use uh, these weapons with impunity. We are not mm -hmm. punishing it at all. Mm -hmm. We are talking about how to raise our own media literacy, but this is kind of our own internal solution. But we are not saying, you know, you are spreading disinformation, you are trying to undermine our democracies, so we will punish you for that. There has been only one incident that I can recall, and that was uh, the indictment of Robert Mueller uh, and uh, the punishment of those who oh, were yeah. involved in the interference in 2016 elections in the United States. But since then, uh, I haven't seen anything like that. And especially here in Europe, there have been at least 14 or 16 various uh, elections and referenda targeted by Russian disinformation. And not a single, not a single country has decided to do something similar as, as the Americans. So mm -hmm. we are basically showing to the Russians that, and to any other potential aggressor, that we do not defend against this kind of aggression. So we can't be surprised that there are now more actors who are mm -hmm. using exactly the same techniques. Yeah. Um, usually disinformation is aimed at both national and international kind of audiences. Are you seeing, um, um, how is disinformation right now in, in Russia, for example, depending, you know, I, I know that they, they, they probably have a few quite a number of coronavirus cases but oh, how much is being hidden and how much is uh the kremlin's propaganda um impacting the situation on the ground so uh the messaging i have seen that's directed inwards uh, to in in russia that's that's a lot about uh, have a look how how the west is uh, basically dismantling itself nothing works there there is no more EU. Uh, you see that uh, borders are, are being closed, so mm. Schengen doesn't work, EU doesn't work, etc. And have a look at us. We are coping with it so well. We have basically no problems at all. Um, so, so it's uh, this uh, ancient narrative of strong Russia and, and weak West. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, they are basically, they are almost all dead and, and we, we are superior and we can cope with the situation better. So this is the chief narrative I have seen. About the impact, this is really hard to, hard to say. We would need to see some opinion polls. Uh, there were, for like example... If, if there are a lot of cases in Russia, people are probably going to the hospital or they're seeing other sick people. It's something that's visible usually, you know? So that's why it's like, it's, I'm not sure how much of an impact they can have if you can see a lot of people lining up at the hospital. Uh, I have to admit, I'm not 100% sure that the people in Russia who see that there are people in the hospital, that they are aware that it might be the COVID virus mm. or uh, so on one hand, it's it's about uh, will they have the right numbers? Will they know that uh, I have seen I have seen some numbers cases of pneumonia have have increased in Russia. So so maybe the people think it's just pneumonia. It's no yeah. it's no COVID. Right? So on one hand, it might be this, uh, and on the other hand, it might be okay. So maybe we are not perfect, but have a look uh, in the West. It's much worse. So we are still good off. Uh, we are still mm. fine. <laughs> so. It's really hard to say. I think in this case, we would really need to have some well-targeted opinion polls uh, that would show us what is the real impact. Uh, something like, do you think that um, uh, Canada has a worse problem with uh, the COVID virus than Russia? And there we would see the answers. Uh, the opinion polls in the past, they have shown us that the disinformation campaign that's targeted at the Russians 
can be enormously effective. There are numbers like uh, 80 to 90% of Russians believing uh, that it was Ukraine to blame for shooting down MH17. So you can see that this information campaign within Russia can be enormously effective. I haven't seen some, some recent opinion poll that would be targeted uh, towards the messaging about the virus, so I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know, we would need to see some, some numbers. Yeah, you were, you were saying earlier that um, in terms of international audiences, the aim is really to discredit, you know, organizations like NATO or you know Western institution or in the US you know really saying you know democratic institutions aren't working there don't trust the media um, and I think over the past few years we've really seen um, across Europe and uh, North America as well kind of a lack of trust in institutions so mm -hmm. is the Russian you know that kind of Russian propaganda now specifically going to have a you know is the goal the exact same or and what kind of impact can it have in or trust in, in institutions this is the trouble when you have like um, two or three factors that are going in the same vector <laughs> which one of them is actually the most impactful we don't know uh, we would need to divide uh, what would be the trust uh, into our democratic institution without the Russian influence, but we can't measure it because the Russian influence is there. <laughs> mm -hmm. So so we can't, unfortunately, I don't know about the method how to how to separate these influences from one another and measure. Here they are, they are using something that is already present, which is brilliant. Uh, they can only amplify it. So it's like, we are not to blame for it. <laughs> we, yeah. we, they, we, they just use what's already present. It's true that you will always have some part of the audience that uh, will refuse to trust mainstream media. It's all, it's all a conspiracy of the elites and, and the mainstream media. They are in it with them and, and it didn't happen like this at all. Uh, you will always have some part of, uh, of an audience that will be like that. But now, we have some malicious actors who are using this audience and they mm -hmm. are also feeding it strategic narratives like mm, undermining the EU, undermining NATO or undermining the whole idea of democracy. So again, I will not tell you precisely what, what, what is the impact like percentage Yeah, it's only going to be in the long term. But, but you, you uh, also mentioned, what I find interesting, you also mentioned in one of your articles that the 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 pro Kremlin propaganda. They're also learning a lot by doing these operations. They're also learning a lot about their audiences for kind of future disinformation absolutely. operations. And I found that really interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. It is actually very similar to when they violate, for example, the airspace. They are doing it quite often in in the Baltic states or or in Scandinavian states. The aim is actually not to attack uh, the other country finland or estonia the aim is to see how your defense uh, works mm. what what mechanisms are triggered test, test the ground. what does it precisely what does it look like when we attack what does it look like and if you would want to do that for real then you would know what what defense uh, is awaiting you and this is actually similar you might sometimes just test uh, the reaction system of, of, of uh, the information ground you are attacking. I, I actually genuinely believe that the 
Columbia chemical hoax in 2014. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that was precisely one of these testing balloons. Mm -hmm. How does the disinformation spread? Who are the people who are retweeting it? Uh, who are the people countering it? Because if, if you know that, I don't know, newsroom A or, or researcher X is going to debunk your disinformation, then you can discredit him or her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, don't trust this guy. He, he's just a Western warmonger and stuff like that. So you can, you can actually learn quite a lot from just conducting these operations. You can see, if you see that it's uh, Fox News who will be happily uh, multiplying conspiracy theories, then mm -hmm. obviously you will be trying to, uh, to engage these guys to, I don't know, write flattering uh, replies to their tweets. This is the yeah. easiest way. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any uh, um, uh, report coming out soon? Some something else that you're working on right now about this specifically, or pro Kremlin propaganda in general? So, uh, just a fresh one. I think it's it, it's very important. It's it's online since yesterday, and that's about the Russian Telegram rumor claiming smoking protects uh, from coronavirus that is already spreading. Yeah. I think I think that's really important, uh, showing that they are spreading lies that will that might cost mm -hmm. lives this is this mm -hmm. is really very I find dangerous the, the craziest some of the craziest theories about how to cure this such as, you know the warm water and some chemicals or and yeah. it's really dangerous this this is precisely dangerous and then one piece we have in the pipeline is uh, uh, that's uh, authored by by the czech company the semantic visions and they are the guys who, who's, who show that according to their data, it was really the Russian channels that were the first ones to introduce the conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theory that it is a US-made mm. or man-made man -made virus. And, and so they are showing the precise uh, point number one or point zero from which it all started spreading. So, so well, that's, that's really interesting because we're... We have now seen China adopt that narrative as well, and then we are going to have, you know, Iran and perhaps India will be next because I, I know conspiracy theories in India have also been kind of pretty active. So we'll have to mm. see. It's, it seems like these networks are kind of working together. It's uh, always hard to find whether whether there is some some. Uh tangible synergy or whether it's just a convergence of yeah, interests yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that's, it that's always more the convergence than rather you know really working together it's just that they you know for example for example in the case of russia and china we know that uh, russian state media and chinese state media they have exchange programs right. and they are there we really have formalized trainings <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and researchers focusing on china uh, i have read one interesting article I believe it was uh, by the uh, Institute for Study of War, or mm -hmm. I hope I'm not mistaken. Uh, and they were writing that uh, recently, like the past 12 or 18 months, we could see that Chinese propaganda is becoming a bit more like the Russian one. It's mm -hmm. not only about mm -hmm. saying that mm -hmm. Russia is great or China is great, but it's also about denigrating your opponent. And that it didn't used to be the case, like for example, yeah. two years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, so we can actually see that uh, some formalized training is there, but in other cases, we, we don't have the information. Yeah, that's true. that's true. Okay. Well, Jacob, thank thank you so much. And thank you for your great work. I think it's more important than ever. I know here in Canada, we have um, a lot of um, experts working on debunking all conspiracy theories and disinformation every day. And they have a lot of work right now. 
So I want to thank you for coming on this podcast and uh, have a wonderful day. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>